The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. To Isaiah 65. Last time we were together, we started looking at what was then six, is now seven, mountaintop texts in Isaiah that I think help inform our reading of this mountaintop text. You'll recall that I've pointed to the, the intrusion of the future into the present in the person of Christ. The future enters into history in Jesus, while all the while the old age, old covenant, and old creation still overlap in our color or something is not quite right yet, but there's, there's also a dot here. And the old age and the new age are overlapping. And it's in the coming of Christ that the the last days begin, that the new creation dawns, that the new covenant comes, and it's at His second appearing that the old age, the old creation, will be no more. Now, what I want to do is turn this image on its head. And... I want you to picture the intrusion of Christ as the rising of a mountain. And as time progresses, that mountain is growing. You'll remember that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. From it, four rivers flowed that that spread out to the entire earth. The whole Greek mythology, and with that, before that, ancient Near Eastern mythology of the gods living in the mountains, I believe, grew out of the fact that originally God's tabernacling presence was in the Garden of Eden, which was a, a garden sanctuary where the presence of God resided. And when fallen hearts and twisted people left the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve went outside and they had offspring, who were part of the offspring of the serpent, the devil allowed minds to be twisted, other gods to be worshipped, and yet still they were associated with the mountains, the high places. And yet what we have originally was one man and one woman put into the garden sanctuary, put there as priest kings, called to guard and serve like priests, called to subdue and have dominion like kings. And the goal was not just to uh, live within this sanctuary, but to fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. That is to see the tabernacling presence of God on top of the mountain of God be ever expanding until the glory of God bound up in the image bearers of God. Remember, there's no image in the temple. No idol. The image were the people. They, we, were the ones who were supposed to put on display the greatness of God, reflecting God, resembling God, representing God to the world. And we were placed in the temple of God, the Garden of Eden, and the call was, image Him. And as that temple, as we would serve in the context, the goal was that as offspring came, and as kingdom families multiplied, that that garden would be ever-expanding. That the new creation would grow and grow as the glory of God would fill the earth until the waters covered the sea. And Adam and Eve, through their sinfulness, did not image God rightly. 
And so the original vision for God's glory to fill the earth was pushed down. And yet God's purposes would stand. And he envisioned in that very moment, before he even judged humanity in the garden, on the mountain of God, before he ever judged them, he declared that a single offspring would rise who would overcome the glory-stealing serpent. And in doing so, reverse the judgment and allow the glory of God once again to be ever-expanding. So Jesus comes as the temple, as the one who is, as we heard in the sermon, embodying the very tabernacling presence of God. In him belongs all grace and truth, all steadfast love and faithfulness. He embodies it. He is putting on display Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus embodies him. But Jesus says, I must go so that the Helper can come. Jesus goes, and the very Spirit of the resurrected Son of God then comes down at Pentecost and fills the church so that we become the temple, that is, the new mountain, the new Jerusalem, identified with the heavenly reality, and that reality is ever-expanding from Jerusalem to Judea-Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we're still living in the time of the overlap. But the mountain has risen. And the day is coming when the old age will be no more. And in that day, the mountain will fill the earth. The glory of God through the imagers of God filling the earth like the waters cover the sea. This is Isaiah's vision. Now, we looked at two of our mountaintop texts. We saw in Isaiah 2, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of God will be higher than all other mountains, and the nations will stream to that mountain. And the result will be, and they'll stream there in order to hear the law of God, a new word of God. It's as if the law of Moses will all of a sudden be superseded by a new law, and with it, a new lawgiver on the mountain. Sinai is a picture of Eden. And it's there that the tabernacle plans are given to Moses. It's there that they build the tabernacle. And then it switches as they move through the wilderness... The holy abode of God goes with them until it settles on a new mountain called Jerusalem. But then that temple gets destroyed, showing that it's just a picture. It gets destroyed in 586 by Babylon, and then after it's rebuilt, it'll get destroyed again in AD 70 by the Romans. But its destruction in A.D. 70 is simply evidence that, and we're not expecting a rebuilding, I don't believe at all. Why? Because Jesus came. He is the temple. And God's timeline doesn't go backwards. The physical temple, the physical Garden of Eden, was was merely a, a pointer to a greater person who would create a greater place. And as we are in Him, He's shaping the people, and in the future, we will see that He's also been shaping a land. So, He shaped the land before the people in the old creation. He shapes the people before we see the new land in the new creation. But the day is coming when the heavenly Jerusalem will come to earth. Now, a high temple a place of peace to which the nations will stream in the latter days. So you remember that phrase, latter days. Peter, when citing Joel 2 in Acts 2, Acts 2.17, adds something to Joel's text which is, is not explicit in Joel's text. 
This is what the prophet Joel said would come to pass in the latter days. That old men will prophesy and young men will dream dreams. Or the other way around, whatever it was. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And it's happening at Pentecost. The latter days have come. Or Hebrews chapter 1. In former days, God spoke to us through his prophets. But in these latter days, in these last days, using the exact same phrase from Isaiah chapter 2, he has spoken to us through his son. We're living in the last days as we await the last day. Then we saw in Isaiah chapter 4, this vision of the mountain of God where all the peoples who were gathered there are holy. But Isaiah 2 told us those who are gathered there are the nations of the world, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles gathered to this mountain. And the vision in Isaiah 4 is that everyone who's there is holy. And then, with an echo of Mount Sinai, but better. It says the glory presence... a Cloud by day and of fire by night will hover over the city to which are gathered all the people. The city is the mountain. The city is Zion, Jerusalem. And all the peoples are gathered there. They have all been made holy and God's presence is resting on them just like his presence rested in the Holy of Holies. Implying, as we saw at the end of three weeks ago, that the city has become the Holy of Holies. And then we looked at Revelation 21, verses 9 and following, when it says, Come, let me show you the bride of God. And I went out and he showed me a city. Jerusalem is the bride. And the city was coming down to earth. And then it begins to describe the city. What was the shape of the city? Anybody remember? A cube. And what was the significance of the fact that it was a cube? Holy of holies. The only cube mentioned outside of Revelation 22, Revelation 21, the only cube mentioned throughout the entire scripture is the holy of holies. Why is there no temple? Because the temple by its nature separates the holy from the common. But in the new creation, everything will have been made holy because the the city is the new creation. It's expanded to fill all things. And there's no separation between the holy and the common. The holy of holies is all there is. God's presence dwelling with man without mediation except through Christ. But no curtains, No walls. Yep. So the question is, what is Ezekiel describing in chapters 40 through 48 of Ezekiel? Well, they fall right on the heels of Ezekiel 36 and 37. That vision of the presence of God in the very last words of the book... Yahweh is there, falls on the heels of the vision of of the declarations made in Ezekiel 36 when he says, I'll take out your heart of stone and put in your heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. Or the valley of dry bones. All of Israel, the call of the old covenant was do this and live, do this and live. And then you get the vision in Ezekiel 37 of what's happened to them. Did they live? No. They're like a valley of dry bones, annihilated under the judgment wrath of God. They didn't do and they didn't live. But somehow, God will blow His presence over them. He will put His Spirit in their midst, as if they have become the very temple of God. As if the people have become the temple. And they will live again. And they'll be overseen by a new David. And there'll be a united people in a new land. So I understand 
reading the book of Ezekiel progressively, the presence leaves the temple in Ezekiel 8 through 11, allowing the Babylonians to come in and destroy it. God's presence leaves the temple. God lets the Babylonian exiles know that he's still with them and that he will be in them. And that the vision of the temple at the end of the book is it, it never includes um, measurements of height. Only measurements of width and depth. Which suggests to me it's not a full-blown blueprint as if it's something to be built. But it's rather envisioning God's holiness over a series of chapters and people's relationship to that holiness using language that they can understand. But what it's envisioning is the future reality of God dwelling in the midst of His people. And it uses imagery of temple, of new creation, of land, that after chapters 36 and 37, we have to ask ourselves if the people have become the very place where God resides, not just people who enjoy His presence, but people in whom the presence exists. They've become the temple. How does that image relate to the picture that's portrayed at the end of the book. And I think they're talking about the same reality. Number three. Is there a, a, like a literal connection between the heavenly and the, and the earthly Jerusalem? Are the two going to meet someday, or, or doesn't So the question is, is there any uh, direct connection between the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem? Are the two going to meet together at any point? Originally, what we're told, the, the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies is called the footstool of God, suggesting that it was at that Ark that God's throne, that it, that was like, um, uh, what would the word be? They make movies today like this. Like you, it's like a, the portal. The Ark of the Covenant was the portal, the, the bridge between heaven and earth. That was the link. But what's amazing is that Jeremiah chapter 3 says, the day is coming when you will no longer remember the Ark of the Covenant because all of Jerusalem will be the throne of God. And gathered to there, this is Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, 16 and 17 rather, gathered to there will be all the nations of the earth. They'll be gathered to Jerusalem, and all of Jerusalem will be the throne of God. That is, the connection between heaven and earth will be bound up in a city and a people. And the next text I'd go to would be Galatians chapter 4, where Paul contrasts the earthly Jerusalem with the heavenly one. And he says, it's the heavenly one that is our mother, not the earthly one. The earthly one has been overcome through the Babylonians, destroyed, restored initially under Ezra, Nehemiah. It allowed for the Messiah to rise from Bethlehem, but then destroyed again in 70 AD. And my understanding, as I read Paul and as I read Isaiah, is that the Jerusalem that we should be concerned about now is not the earthly one. It's, be, it's been identified with, well, Matthew chapter 2, out of Egypt I have called my son. Herod is the new Pharaoh. He's the king of Jerusalem. He is the new Pharaoh who wants to destroy all the babies. And out of Egypt, that is Jerusalem and its environs, God called His Son. That the Jerusalem of earth is identified 
with enemy turf, not with heavenly turf. Now, praise God, just as in all the cities of the earth, well, many cities of the earth, God, is raise, God has and will continue to raise up people in Jerusalem. We have global partners who are located there. And there is a work this morning, Bethlehem, the other Bethlehem Bible College was mentioned. When I spent a semester in Israel, now 25 years ago, I was a, it was good for me to go to Bethlehem and visit Palestinian Christians who are closer to God than most of the Jews that I was living next to in Jerusalem because they enjoy relationship with the mediator and they have new birth certificates that say this one was born there not in the earthly Jerusalem but in the heavenly one whereas the many of the Jews that I was interacting with Jesus would simply tag you are offspring of your father the devil and it's not just the Jews it's anyone who does not submit themselves to, Jesus, to King Jesus. Text 3. I have a question or comment. Yes. Um, it is so like, breathtaking to me the fact that this super profound and, and deep truth uh, was revealed by Jesus in such simple words to the woman at the well. And I'm aware that some versions of the Bible, some manuscripts don't include this passage, but uh, it, like uh, it says that the woman says that some, some say that we have to worship in Samaria, some say that we have to worship in, in Mount Zion, and Jesus says that they will come where, where there will be a place where they worship in Zion. So good, so good. So that's a masterful, like, masterful, and that's that's a. That's exactly, that, that's a great text, so helpful. That's exactly what I think Jesus is declaring. Um, the day is coming when you will not worship at this mountain or in Zion, but you will worship everywhere in spirit and in truth. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Text 3. Chapter 11, 1 through 10. Why don't you turn in your Bibles there? Isaiah 11. So many of these we've covered as we've journeyed through. So these, I, what I'm wanting to do, though, is draw together all of these mention the mountain of God. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Why doesn't it say there will come forth a shoot from David? Well, because David wasn't the guy we need to be focusing on. We need a new David. So they go back to his father. From the stump of Jesse will rise a new king. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Don't take lightly the new creation imagery. This is garden language, and it's going to grow from one person. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him as if he himself is the very tabernacling presence of God. Where he is, the temple is. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in that fear. He shall not judge by what he his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Think about um, 1 Samuel 17. When David came up, sorry, when Eliab, David's older brother, came up, Samuel said, oh, surely this is the anointed of God. And that's when we learn man judged by, judges by the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He's not going to be judging through manly perspectives. No, he's going to be judging with the very eyes of God. 
With righteousness, He shall judge the poor. He'll recognize the brokenness. He'll recognize the oppression. He'll recognize the hurt. He knows it all. And He will bring real justice. He'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, with the breath of His lips. He shall kill the wicked. That's all it's going to take. A word. That's why He's portrayed in Revelation as having a sword coming out of His mouth. All He has to do is speak and judgment comes. No swinging necessary. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he'll kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness, the belt of his loins. It's one of three texts in Isaiah where we see it's the Messiah who wears the armor of God before we ever get to wear it. It's the fact that we're in him that allows us to have all the armor because he is the one who, in whom we rest. But then it says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now, we're going to see that's in our passage. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion with the fattened goat together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. Now, I mentioned when we got to this point, anybody remember comments I made about this child? Anyone? Unto us a child is born. That's Isaiah 9. Isaiah 7, a virgin will give birth to a son. Up to this point, a child has been mentioned. I don't think the point is any child. It's the child. The child king of Isaiah chapter 9, is the child who will be leading these enemy beasts. And then support for this comes in the fact that this, what's translated nursing child, that word only shows up one other time in Isaiah, and it happens to be Isaiah 53 verse 2, where it's, it's translated there, I'll just read it for us. He grew up before them like a young plant. There it is. A tender shoot, a young plant. God, Jesus grew up before his God like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. He was despised and rejected of men. He was like a root out of dry ground. That's Isaiah 53. A tender shoot or a young plant. That's the term used here for nursing child. And then we're going to see the same word for root in verse 10. Where it says, in that day the root of Jesse will be a banner. So we read here about the wolf and the leopard. The calf and the lion. they the wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the young goat, the calf and the lion, they're all dwelling together. They're being led by, I believe, the child king who has no fear of the cobra and the adder. Because he's overcome the serpent. I think that we've already seen the image of new creation here. He doesn't fear that which brought judgment on the earth. I think this is an allusion to Genesis chapter 3, 15. He doesn't fear the cobra. He puts his hand over, stretches it out over the adder's den. And then it says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The question is, would these be symbols of different races? Now, it's very possible, and I mentioned this when we looked at Isaiah chapter 11, that... Even though we, we picture initially lion and lamb as if wild beast and tender domesticated animal, but it is the case that elsewhere in Scripture, it's the nations of the world that are portrayed as beasts. 
And already in Isaiah chapter 2, where it talked about perfect peace being established to the mountain of God, it wasn't animals that were going to Jerusalem, it was the nations who were going to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, war weapons were, ban- were, were um, sent to the forge and remade into gardening tools in Isaiah chapter 2. So it is possible that, that these animals are actually images of the peace that God will bring on the peoples of the earth. Now Hosea chapter 2 tells us he's going to make a new creation covenant, and it's going to include peace among animals. But the question is, is as the mention of the animals here talking more about the hostility of the nations that is all of a sudden going to be thwarted. Certainly today, we look and we see that the old creation is still having influence, that the entire mountain is not visible. But what's striking is that verse 10, in that day, in the day when the, the offspring, the, the son of Jesse will rise, in the day that the, the new creation will sprout, in the day that the temple of God will show up in the life of a person, in the day when nation and nation will all of a sudden That once in in animosity, now people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation will all of a sudden be working together in partnership. In that day, it says, the Lord will extend, sorry, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal or a banner for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." Now, what I want you to recognize is we're looking here at this mountain. We're seeing these mountain texts. And what I, want to per, what I want to suggest is that we're looking at seven of them. It's a lens. So, seven of them. And what I'm wanting to suggest is that Isaiah in every one of these mountaintop texts is simply portraying, looking at the same image from different angles. And at times, we're actually catching glimpses of the mountain after the old age is fully gone. But other times, we're actually catching glimpses of the mountain as you and I are experiencing it today. And the reason I can say that, one reason, is because Paul cites verse 10 of Isaiah 11 in Romans 15. Look at the text. Oh, I've got all these notes up here, and I'm just talking through it. Um, Okay. Where did I have the notes? Oh, I had them at the end. Um, Let me draw attention to it now. Um, It's at the very end. Last slide. Look at the bottom here. Don't worry about the heading. We might cover that later. <laughs> Just look at these, these texts right here. So the ESV is translating the Hebrew. Paul isn't preaching from his Hebrew text. He's preaching from his... Uh, yeah, I was thinking of some cool title for it. Uh, he, like, he, he has his ESV open, but it's in Greek. Okay, He's just preaching from his English text, just like Jason did this morning. And this is what the Greek translation of 11.10 says, And there shall be on that day the root of Jesse, even the one who arises up to rule the nations, which is consistently translated as Gentiles in the New Testament. Same, same group, not at all a different word, same word. He'll, who arises up to rule the nations, in him will the nations hope. And his rest shall be honor. And again, Isaiah says, this is Paul now. 
giving clarity. He's, he's wanting to give clarity as to what Jesus has brought about and why he's ministering to the Gentiles in the book of Romans like he is. Because Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And I'm about seeing the fulfillment of that in my day 2,000 years ago. So when we read the mountaintop text of Isaiah chapter 11, and verse 10 says, in that day... In the day when the mountain rises, in the day when nation will be bonded together with nation and there will be peace, in that day is already. This is the day. We're not looking ahead to something future, waiting for the other side of Jesus' appearing, but rather we're seeing that with respect to Isaiah 11, at least some of Isaiah 11 is now. Because Paul cites this text in support of his own ministry to Gentiles. And saying, this is what Jesus has inaugurated. The start of Gentiles finding hope in the Messiah. Now, one more element that I want to draw attention to. And that is, look at verse 9 of Isaiah 11. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. That's going to be quoted word for word in Isaiah 65. So whatever Isaiah 11 is about, I think Isaiah 65 is about. Keep that in mind. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's where we started. Some passages, this, that little line shows up in different forms about six times in the Old Testament. The glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. And the vision is one of expansion. So he says, they won't hurt or destroy in my mountain because the earth. So there's some close relationship between the mountain and the earth. And my proposal is that in all likelihood, that relationship is that they are completely overlapping. Because the Holy of Holies has filled all things. It's not just that there's a city in the new creation called Jerusalem, but that the new creation is Jerusalem. Text, whatever number. Whatever number we're on. Um, Chapter 24. I can still see you with my binoculars, though. <laughs> no, I definitely... My, my understanding of how the Scriptures are holding together is that things will get worse before they get better, and that 
the language of Paul's language of tribulation stands in contrast to great tribulation. That right now there are pockets of the two elements that are associated with the Antichrist in the book of Daniel are false teaching and persecution. And they are already, for 2,000 years, been just as intense as they will ever be. But it's been selective. It's in pockets. And it's resulted in martyrdom. And then there's a large population of people who are dying of old age. And both groups are talked about in Revelation chapter 20. Standing before the throne. Those who were beheaded for the sake of the gospel and those who died in Christ of old age. But the day is coming, I believe, when all of a sudden there will be unleashed on the planet due to the rise of evil and the evil one, a global hostility. It won't no, it'll no longer be in pockets. It will be, it will be um, a level of persecution that if Jesus did not return, there would not be one Christian left. That's how the Scripture talks. And both Zechariah chapter 9, I think it's 9, it may be Zechariah 12, and... Definitely, Revelation 11, 19, and 20 speak of the battle. The battle. And the battle is the one where Christ will come in riding on his white horse with the sword out of his mouth, and in a single word, the war will be over. So the, the, the tribulation against the church will be building and building um, to the point, so, so what you have to recognize is that the, the, peop, the bride is identified fully with the groom. And in standing against the bride, you're standing against the husband. And in not accepting Jesus, and in standing against those who are identified with him, you are declaring war on God. And that war will ultimately come to an end. The war is increasing and it will spread global. I think that's what the Bible envisions, is that yes, there is a, a climactic battle, but what is happening today is not separate from it. It's part of it. It is the end times tribulation that will continue to increase until, it has, it, until there isn't a pocket on the globe that it isn't. Babylon will, will Babylon in the figurative sense that stands against the heavenly Jerusalem, that Babylon, using the language of Revelation, will grow until it fills the earth and influences every pocket standing against the offspring of the Messiah. So is, is there a scriptural difference between the concept you talk about the last days and we're in, in the last days as you describe it? And is there also a concept of the last day? I mean, the final, is this Right, I'm, I'm saying that the New Testament uses the language of latter days as something that is inaugurated at the resurrection and continues on in that, that we're a part of it today. We're living in the latter days, but it's not that the apostles weren't. They were as well, and that it's been stretched out. Uh, the text that comes to my mind immediately is 1 Peter chapter 1, where he says... At the beginning, he says, um, let me see if I can find it. Okay. So, we have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. For you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Singular. Then, at the end of the chapter, he says, Let's 
somewhere. Give me a second. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. In 1.5, the last time is still ahead of us. He was revealed in the last times, plural, already for our sake. Now, it uses two different Greek terms there. But one is in the singular, the first one, and one is in the plural. And it's contrasting two periods, the last time versus the last times. It would be similar to we're living in the last hour. Sorry. uh, How was it worded in Isaiah 61? Um, The year of the Lord's favor, the day of the vengeance of our God. We're living in the year, but we haven't arrived at the day. We're in the last hour, but not in the last minute. 120. So in what, what you were saying about tribulation and the great battle, then um, you wouldn't anticipate Christ coming soon. Is that what you said? Oh, uh, I think he could, I think that he could come imminently. Um, I, I don't know how quickly things could turn. Um, and then we have to remember that false teaching and persecution can take many forms. What Babylon looks like in America is very different than what it looks like in Ethiopia. What I mean is the the means by which Satan is deceiving entire people groups looks very different in different cultures. And the means by which he is drawing people in, here in the West through sexual imagery, which would never show up in the Middle East. It just would not. And yet... He's using other worldview alterations to cloud and deceive. And I don't think it would necessarily take much to alter the course that we, the course of freedom and peace we feel right now where we are. Um, but I don't, I don't know how soon he will come. I can't remember exactly where it is. I think it was Revelation where there's a picture of the martyrs and the Lord. And there's a mention that there's some children born on earth. So it seems to me what you're just teaching me of, there may be a lot more martyrs in that last Right. Right. I think I think that Revelation twenty is distinguishing those who die of cancer, trusting in Jesus, um, who die of dementia, trusting in Jesus, versus those who are stabbed, sawed into, heads cut off for the sake of Jesus. And both are considered faithful. So you don't necessarily see the wave of persecution of people for believing like you do here. You just say, holding fast to the faith and the things of the world. Um, I, think, I think that the image is that the suffering will increase. A suffering of persecution and deceit, those two elements, and, um, but does, does the deception necessitate false teaching, or could it, could it include 
just lies in the head. Um, if you're battling cancer, God doesn't care for you. He's departed from you. And all of a sudden, a person that, when times were easy, said they followed Jesus, when times in physical ailment got hard, they turned on him. I think that's prob- that, that, that is part of the end times imagery. I, um, so may, maybe so. I, I've been prone to think the language of the war um, suggests to me a global intensification of the persecution side. Look with me in Isaiah 24. <clears throat> 24 verse 1 says, The Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. That's 24.1. This is talking about a global judgment. Now, when we get to verse 21 of chapter 24, it gives us the context. On that day, when God will bring judgment on a global scale, He will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit They'll be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they'll be punished. Now, we spent six weeks looking at that verse and shooting into Revelation to consider its backdrop. Some would read that as referring to a millennium in the future. And I understand it to be a present-day phenomena where God has entered in and has held back the devil's work at a level that is allowing the church to grow and the people of God to expand around the globe in a way it never was before Jesus came. So true. So true. And it has been happening all along. The scattering of nations is happening right now. And it's like there is uh, racial, races against race and sword against sword. And but already in his coming, there are peoples that were part of nations that were once hostile that are no longer hostile where there is already a global peace being created across numerous tongues and tribes and languages and peoples, where already the church is a global reality. And like you said, Jesus is that structure. He's the cornerstone of a temple, the foundation of which is the apostles, and then the church is built upon it. When Yahweh brings punishment on the world overcoming the old era of mankind. That's the timing of this mountaintop experience of global praise and celebration. The nature of it. Look with me at 1 through 5. O Lord, You are my God. I'll exalt You. I'll praise Your name. This is, I think, future reality. For You have done wonderful things. Things that You'd planned to do for, for such a long time. Faithful and sure. What have You done? You've made the world city a heap. The fortified city, a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples from different nations will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Because you have entered in to care for the poor. You've been a stronghold to the poor. A stronghold to the needy in their distress. A shelter from the storm. A shade from the heat. 
And from the breath of the ruthless, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. It beats and does not overcome. Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. This is grounds for celebration. God will punish the kings of the earth, redeeming the poor and the needy and subduing the wicked, resulting in praise. Then, on this mountain, the mountain that has been elevated above all, God will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, like a marriage supper. A feast of well-aged wine. I will not eat this cup and this bread with you until I eat it anew with you in my kingdom. Of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Yahweh will make for all all peoples a feast of celebration, and He will destroy death forever. He will swallow up death forever. On this mountain, the covering that has been cast over all peoples, the veil that spread over all nations, He'll just swallow it up. He will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of His people He'll take away from all the earth. All peoples, all peoples, all nations, all faces, all the earth. Because the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for Him that He might save us. This is our, this is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. This is the day when death will be no more. And the result will be praise. Praise. So I think this, because it's cited in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21, the overcoming of death, no more tears, no more pain. We're looking at this stage, post the coming of Christ, when the mountain of God has resulted in there being no more curse, no more death. It's all overcome. We still have three more texts. Next week is 52 messages on Isaiah. My hope is for 53, just for poetic beauty. We will see. Father, You are a God who is building a kingdom. A mountain you have already identified us, at least most of us, I, am, I, I pray, with that dwelling place. You've given us new birth certificates and declared this one was born there. And we celebrate the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb. We celebrate what already is, Christ having come allowing us to find reconciliation across cultural lines, language lines. The gospel is running and you're letting us be a part of it and we praise you. We pray that you would give us boldness in the midst of oppression, adversity, challenge, that you would move us to pray for those who are in such deep persecution. We think of China right now. North Korea right now. Sudan right now. Somalia, right now. Oh God, give grace to those believers to keep trusting. Not growing weary and well-doing, but keeping their eyes on You who obeyed even to the point of death, death on the cross, in order that they with You might find themselves highly exalted. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word, which gives us hope. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. 
For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.